All right, well, we're so glad you guys are here with us today. Uh, it is, they think I'm a lot skinnier than I am, apparently, so uh, we'll move that back for a second. So it's Christmas. We hope you are ready. And so today, every year, I struggle the week of Christmas with messages because most of us know the story. Uh, but I wanted to kind of this week and leading in the next weekend. And today, and some of you guys like when I do this, and some of you are like, boring. Uh, we are going to do a giant history lesson today to lead up to the Christmas story. And so I want to give you a different perspective on kind of the Christmas story um, because it's an odd story. It really is. And we, we've kind of adopted it and just kind of made it kind of this glossy story. But there's so much complications. There's so much drama and tension behind the story. Um, and it's an odd story. I mean, the fact that we celebrate the birth of a baby born in the Middle East to teenage parents on the run because of a census, and there's donkeys, maybe, and shepherds, for sure, and some wise men, you don't know how many there were, and she was a virgin, right? So it's kind of like this kind of story that we're just like, okay, and yet it, it means so much to us, and the story endures culturally. Um, not just in our culture, but cultures across the world. Um, I mean, it's gotten to the point that, that even cultures that don't celebrate Christmas, if you show them a nativity scene, uh, they know what it means. They, they know what it, it represents. And, and this story, it comes out of a very tense part uh, of human history and a tense part of, of our story as people. And it was first told as an oral tradition, and then it kind of gained some resonance as some things played out and some things happened to literally thousands of years later, we wear odd sweaters and drink eggnog to celebrate this story, right? So what I want to do is I want to give you, as I said, some history kind of behind the story, maybe some stuff that you've never thought about or never heard that kind of leads up to the story that we're going to talk about um, into next week. And this story has many layers to it and has some depths to it. And so we're going to look at two very important people today um, in this story, and we're going to kind of understand them hopefully a little bit better and the significance they play in this story heading into next week. Now, to set it up, I want to give you one of my favorite quotes, um, and, and it's not going to come on the screen. I'm just going to read it to you. It says this, most of the Bible is a history told by people living in lands occupied by conquering superpowers. It is a book written from the underside of power. It's an oppressive narrative. The majority of the Bible is written by a minority people living under the rule and reign of massive, mighty empires, from the Egyptian Empire to the Babylonian Empire to the Persian Empire to the Assyrian Empire to the Roman Empire. This can make the Bible a very difficult book to understand if you're reading it as a citizen of the most powerful empire the world has ever seen. That's us, by the way. Without careful study and reflection and humility, it can maybe even possible to miss the central themes of the scriptures. What we know is that history is generally written by the victors. But yet when we see the Bible, what we see is we see this narrative that's written by people who are often oppressed. And so to begin, I, I want to show you a picture of, um, and I want you to imagine, um, if you can, um, that there was once a highly contentious piece of land. Imagine if you can, right? Now this is still a highly contentious piece of land. But, but this land was unique in a couple ways. Um, it, it was very important because of the trade route. So if you look at this, 
Um, to go from Africa, which is Egypt, to Asia, you had to go through this land. To go from Egypt to Europe, you had to go through this land. To go from Asia to Europe, you had to go through this land. And so you can imagine this was a very important piece of real estate in the world, especially when it came to trade routes. And so there were lots of people that had an interest in what was going on in this land. And there's still people today that have an interest in what's going on in this land. Now, at some point, there's a particular Hebrew tribe that enters into this land. They drive out the people living in there because they believe that this was a land promised to them by God. And over a period of time, and they get it right, and then they get it wrong, and all these things happen, and there's all this drama and all of this tension, eventually there's a king that rises up from within this land, from within these people, and he does something that nobody else has been able to do before him. That king is a king that we've talked about a lot around here. We just used him a couple weeks ago, and his name is David. David was about 30 years old when he began his kingship, and he reigned for about 40 years, which in, in their world, in their history, is a long period of time. And so this man, he takes this incredibly volatile piece of land, and he rules it for a period of time. Now, the interesting thing about David, and we've talked about him a lot, and it's really important to understand David to understand the Christmas story. See, David is sort of this mythological nature uh, creature. He's larger than life, and the first stories that are told about him, told around the fire, and we've used many of them, he's bigger, he's stronger, he's more fierce, he's, he's this electric figure, but he's also a man that comes from humble beginnings, there's even the story that when Saul, who was the king at the time, offers his daughter Michael to uh, David to be married, David's response is like, I'm just this poor kid. Like, how it's a big thing to be the, the son of the king. And, and, and so he's got like these humble beginning. We see the story where, where David chops off the head of Goliath. I mean, he, he's this warrior, but then we also see scenes where he's playing a harp. He's larger than life, but he's also every man. But as we've studied here before, and I've showed you parts of the story, he's also ruthless. He's also a violent man. There's even this part of the story where, where God looks at David and he tells him, he says, um, you, you don't get to build the temple because there's too much blood on your hands. Your son, Solomon, he'll get to do that, but you don't. And so it's like this massive story, not only throughout the Bible, but above these people. And he plays this central role. But there was one important thing that David did that nobody else had been able to do before him and nobody else was able to do after him. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see this. After the king, who's David, was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him. David, for the first time, brought peace to the people. There was peace in the land because of David. Peace the people had not had in so long. So there's peace. And isn't that the goal? Isn't the thing we all want? We want peace. But there's another part of David's story, and it's the part that we all eventually will play, and that's the story where David dies as people have a habit of doing. So often it happens in history, David dies and it gets put in the hands of someone else. It gets put in the hands of his sons. And what we see is that after David dies, all of this work, all of this effort, all of this energy, it all starts to fall apart. 
And David's sons make a mess of things. And then the descendants of David's sons make an even greater mess of things. It eventually gets to the point in 922 that Israel is actually split into two nations. You have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And there's all of these kings that come in. But because the nation itself split and then you have these kings that aren't great leaders, um, what happens is people start to notice the weakness of Israel. This proud and prominent nation, this land that had once been ruled by this mighty warrior David, and now, now there's cracks in the armor. And so in 722, we see the Assyrians come in and they conquer the northern kingdom. In 586, Babylonian ruled by Nebuchadnezzar II, he comes in and he conquers Judah and destroys the temple and takes the Israelites captive. In 538, we see the king of Persia conquers Babylon and he comes in and he rules, but he does something interesting. He allows the Jewish people to go and to return home. And so there's this period where they're back in Israel and they're able to do the things that they want to do. And the second temple is built, but it doesn't last long. Because then the Greeks come in, led by a man named Alexander the Great, and he conquers them. And for about 160 years, this land is ruled by the Greeks. And and a part of history we don't talk about is the violence and the bloodshed and the heartache. There's stories in the Bible, and and just a reminder, we do have kids' church, but there's the stories in the Bible about the kings of Israel. And there's this one king in particular that he revolts a little bit against the the kings that actually ruled the land, the conquerors. And, And there's this story where they say that they take the king because he's been disobedient, and they kill his sons in front of him. And then they take a spear, and they take his eyes out. They want the last thing for him to see is the death of his sons. There's a story about when Alexander the Great comes in and the Greeks come in, that there's stories that when they go in and they destroy the temple, that literally the piles of bodies match that of the height of the temple, and that there was blood everywhere. And there's stories of this over and over again, of this bloodshed and this violence against these people. These proud people. There's this one story where where, where it takes place where in 167, and we'll talk about this here more in a minute, where where there's this group of people called the Maccabeans, and they rise up against this revolt, and and they actually win. They take on the Greeks, and they're actually successful. And for about 100 years, there's peace in the land again, although a small little glimpse of peace until the Romans come in. Led by Pompey the Great, he comes in and he conquers Israel and he wipes out everything they'd worked towards. And so when you get to the Christmas story, which is about a thousand years after David, it's been a thousand years of defeat and humiliation. Every major global military superpower had marched through this narrow stretch of land And had conquered it. And had done it in violent and bloody and horrific ways. These people have been oppressed by one empire after another. And so when Luke tells you that a virgin named Mary, who happens to live in a small, marginalized group of people, Jewish people, like there's some sense to that story. This is real. There's a lot of pain there. There's a lot of heartache there. 
And if you're a first century Jewish person like Mary was, you've lived with thousands of years of shame and defeat and humiliation. Now, what adds to this story is the idea that you're supposed to have the God who is above all of the other gods. And yet you keep losing. So there's this question, is the system messed up? Is the story off the rails? Or is God someone that can actually be trusted? Uh, the time we see Mary's story start to take place, which you may not realize, is there's been 400 years of silence. So the last writings that you see in the Old Testament before the New Testament begins, is about a 400-year period, and they call it the years of silence. Has the story gone off the rails? What's going on? And then there's a teenage girl. Have you ever met one of these? A teenage girl? 13, 14-year-old girl. And what's so fascinating about this story is this is is not what anybody saw coming. This is not the story that people expected. But what is the story that we do get? And this story that first circulated, this Christmas story, we only see it recorded in two places, in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. And this was a story that was told orally amongst the people for about 50 to 70 years, and then eventually it's written down. And so Luke, we're going to look at his specifically today, Luke says that Mary came from a town called Nazareth in Galilee. Which again is a land in Israel, a land that's been conquered and ruled. And this, this piece of land has been oppressed and victimized and destroyed time and time again. And there's been so much violence that's happened here, it can't even all be recorded. And there's been a history. There's been a history of kings coming in and people ruling the land, not only foreign but abroad. And there's even been like this history of of kings and leaders coming up from within Israel that are appointed by these outside and oppressive forces. But the problem is every single time there's one of these kings, it almost always ends tragically. And there's a lot of heartache and a lot of pain. And even the Maccabean revolt, even though they were successful for a period of time, it ends in tragedy. And so you have all of these stories that are circulating about these kings and these rulers and these leaders that are coming up from within, and yet it all ends in pain and heartache. And so this angel comes to Mary, and here's what it says in Luke chapter 1. The angel went to her and said, greetings you who are highly favored The Lord is with you. And then there's this verse that that I've read a bunch of times, but I never really picked up on it. And it says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. What's fascinating here is that almost every other time that we see an angel appear to someone, there's always this immediate message of like, don't be afraid, fear not, and all of this stuff. But that's not what we see from Mary. Mary is greatly troubled at the words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. See, think about the history of these people. And so if a messenger comes along, and this takes place, we see this in the prophets, if a messenger comes along and tells you that you are highly favored and chosen, what's that for? Why am I highly favored and chosen? What are the possibilities to lead, to possibly go into battle, to step out and do something courageous? Like like if you're chosen by God, okay, in this point in human history, well, what does that actually mean? What does that mean to be highly favored? So the angel goes on. 
But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. Now, you've probably read that before and you probably never paid attention. The son of the most high is the same title that they gave to the son of Caesar. And so there's like this political language that's kind of shoved into the story. The Lord will give him the throne of his father. Here it is, David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now you can try to take out the political realities of this story. But if you're a 14-year-old girl who lives in a land that's been conquered by people after people after people, and you are now living in a time of the most oppressive, mighty military empire that's ever existed, and you're told that you have favor and you have a son that's on his way and he's going to create a kingdom, well, where do you think she's thinking about? Especially a kingdom under David, because what did David do? Well, David came into a land and he ran out everybody. David came into a land and through violence of his own, he did bring peace, but it wasn't without bloodshed and it wasn't without heartache and it wasn't without pain. And so in her mind, there's this new David. So what does that mean? Well, that means because we're ruled by the Romans and if David's going to come in and do what David had once done, then we will return to greatness and he will run off everybody else. And so now I've got this son that's coming. And he's going to have a kingdom. Well, what do kingdoms do? Kingdoms go to war. Kingdoms fight. But here's another question for you. Is this the first time that someone stepped up in Israel history and tried to do this? No. In fact, if you study it, what you'll find out is there's been other perceived saviors of Israel. There's even to this point been other men that have come on and said that they would be the Messiah. Jesus wasn't the first one to come along and do this. You have to study this for yourselves. So imagine Mary and imagine what she's thinking and imagine all of the stuff that's racing through her head and there's no wonder she's troubled by the words of this angel. Now there's another important detail that we often don't think about in stories like this in the Bible. Again, told you, this is a history lesson. So that's name. Name meant something. See, in today's world, and I get it, I'm a parent. So what we do is we name our kids and we try to come up with some unique name that nobody else's kids is named, right? And we spell it in all kinds of weird ways and all that stuff. That's what we do, right? But in their world, names meant something. Name carries the story forward. Name plays a crucial part in the telling of the story. And so we have this angel and he comes to a girl named Mary. But Mary's name isn't actually Mary. It's a Greek translation of a Hebrew name. The Hebrew name is Miriam. Now, <clears throat> Miriam is an important name in the history of the Hebrew people. And Mary, being a good Jewish girl, she probably had good Jewish parents who had given her a good Jewish name that sort of carried an ancestry and a heritage of the people. Now, in, in Israel's history at this point, there's at least, and there's more, but there's at least two famous Marys or Miriams that her parents would have known the stories of. 
The first one is the story of a lady that lived a long time ago, and she was the sister of a guy named Moses, and her name was Miriam. Now, where does her story take place? Her story takes place in the book of Exodus. Exodus is the giant opening of the story of these Hebrew people. So what's going on in the time in which Miriam pops onto the scene? They're enslaved. The people are being oppressed in Egypt, and their God, the God of Israel, he declares that he's going to bring the people out of this. He's the God of the underdog, the God of the oppressed, the God who hears the cry of the slaves. And so in this story of Miriam, what we see is she takes a central role in the releasing of these people. These people that have been oppressed and hurt, and she makes a major role in the liberation of these people. Well, we see that there's this part where right after the people walk through the Sea of Galilee, that, that Miriam, she grabs a tambourine and she leads all of the women around and they start singing these songs and they're dancing and they're singing these songs of liberation and freedom. And so Mary, the mother of Jesus, would have grown up in a tradition that would have told the stories as they read the Torah about the great Miriam and the liberation that she took part in. They would have heard stories about her being able to sing and dance as the oppressors are now left behind. And now generations later, the people are oppressed again. And so is it possible that, that maybe God would liberate the people again? And so there's this image of Miriam dancing on the shore, leading everybody and singing, and she's like this music leader of this resistance and this revolution. She's joy, she's freedom, she's released from captivity. But there's another part to the story of Miriam. We see later that Miriam will die in the desert of Zen, the place that we all want to go, right? In the land of Kadesh. Miriam is died and, and buried there. So, so they have Miriam, Mary, who's been this like massive hero in the tradition of the people, but she also dies. And the other part of her story is she dies in the desert, which isn't the promised land. And so her story, it represents this idea that, that she dies, but she dies short of the goal. And so Miriam carries this story of joy and freedom, but also the heartache of not seeing your dreams fulfilled. There's another Mary, much closer to this story that we see of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And in order to take this story and understand it, I have to give you another history lesson. And so to get to this story, we have to go back into history. And so you have the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, and then the Greeks. Now the Greeks, when they come in, they have this, this guy that leads them, and his name is Antasis Epiphanes. And he basically decided that the whole world should be Greek. And so whenever he would go in and conquer a land, he, he would try to wipe out everything that wasn't Greek, everything that had nothing to do with the Greek. Greek way of thinking and the Greek way of understanding the world. And he realized that these Jewish people were going to be a problem because, see, they were resistant to the Greek idea because they had this God and they had this temple and they had this way in which they did everything. And so he comes in and he makes it illegal, basically, for them to be Jewish. And he wipes out everything. He destroys the temple. There's these stories, as I told you, about this bloody and violent way in which he does this. And there's this pain and this tragedy within these people. And in 167, there's a Jewish, Jewish group of rebels called the Maccabeans. 
And in 167, as we said earlier, they revolt against Greece. And against all odds, they actually win. And the land is liberated. And there's this whole tradition about the way in which they liberated the land and they rebuilt the temple. But the problem was there wasn't enough oil in order to light up the temple. But the oil, for some reason, just kept burning and burning and burning. It was this miraculous thing. And it's where you get the, the oil for, in Hanukkah, the, the candle that burns and burns and burns. So the Maccabeans, they led this revolt for a period of time. And in, in this kind of Maccabean revolt, there's one Jewish family named the Hasmoneans that step out and they lead this revolt. And they lead the liberation and the freedom and the independence of Israel for about a hundred years. So imagine, again, you've had 900 years of oppression. Now to give you some context, because I can see that some of you, you're not understanding the significance of this. That's three times the existence of our country. 900 years of oppression. And all of a sudden, you have 103 years of peace. But then the Romans come. And the Romans put all of the other oppressors to shame. And we'll talk about it next week a little bit. But the Romans came in and they took over. And Israel was, again, a kind of a sore in their side, and they didn't know what to do with them. And so they said, hey, who's going to take care of this land called Israel? And they didn't have anybody that they knew that wanted to lead this. So they found this puppet king. They found this guy named Italy from Italy, and his name was Herod, last name the Great, all right? It wasn't. So Herod the Great comes in. And Herod the Great comes in. Now, now we hear the story of Herod. We're familiar with the story of Herod. But Herod was fearless, but he was also brilliant, but he was also nasty and brutal. The stories of Herod the Great, as you read them in history, are unbelievable at how violent and manipulative this man actually was. And so Herod the Great takes over in this kind of ruling part of Israel. This is the same Herod that we're going to see in the story of Jesus later, but, but he has a problem. See, the Hasmoneans still have a lot of pool in this area. They still have a lot of power and a lot of influence. And so what is he going to do? How is he going to make peace with these people that he's trying to rule as a puppet king of Rome? Well, he decides what he's going to do is he's going to make a peace offering to them. And the peace offering is, is he's going to marry one of the Hasmonean leader's daughters. And her name was Mary. The story of Mary tells us that she was this beautiful and wise and loved woman by the people. And so she marries Herod, this violent and oppressive man. And so imagine just a couple of decades before the Christmas story, there's this famous Jewish princess who is known for her beauty and her kindness and her wisdom who came from this legendary family who had once brought peace and independence to people who so desperately wanted it. So the name Mary carries a lot of weight. But the problem with Mary and Herod is Herod is ruthless. And he makes her life miserable. And in the story we see that he kills her family, he kills her friends, and eventually he kills her. And so there's a lot of weight behind this name. And there's a lot of tragedy behind this name. Now, the name Mary is a Hebrew name, but it also has Egyptian roots. And if you look at the name and you kind of, kind of break it apart, um, what you see is it comes from these two streams. 
Now, now from the Hebrew stream, the, the name Mary, it often means beloved and unique, which makes sense that, that Mary is this beloved character. And, and even in the story that we see, she's this beloved woman. She's going to become the mother of Jesus, who's going to be the liberator of all people. But it also translates a different way. And the way it translates is the sea of sorrow and the ocean of sadness. And when you think about the stories that we just told, a woman who had so much respect of the people and led them through freedom and liberation only to die short of the dream that she had for herself and her people. And we see the story of another Mary who had all this prominence within this land and this Herod, he comes in and he rules the lands and he's brutal and he's ruthless to the people and to her and ultimately she dies at his hands just on the other side of a time of peace. It's the idea of greatness and liberation and freedom and joy, but it's always accompanied by sorrow and burden. And so when Luke in the first century tells you a story about a young girl named Mary, there's a bit of history there. There's a bit of meaning there. So this girl at this time, with this history swirling around her, And the angel says, don't be afraid. You have been highly favored. You're going to have a son, and he's going to have a throne, and he's going to reign over a kingdom. Think about the weight of those words. Think about the blood that has been shed. The soil is soaked in it. So what does this mean for this girl? What does this mean for this story? So oftentimes the Christmas story is sort of has this gloss to it. It's the nativity scene in the town square. But we don't talk about the pain and the suffering and the heartache that leads up to it. And so if you're Mary and you hear that you're about to give birth to a king, in the time of the greatest oppression that the people have ever seen, you might be a little troubled yourself. And you might ask questions like, what will this require of me? What is this going to take of me? And where is this going to take me? And so Mary is greatly troubled at these words. And as a mom, can you imagine? Can you imagine what's being told to you? Can you imagine the thoughts that you have? This promise that something new is about to happen, something that will change everything, but it might be a bit messy. It might be a bit complicated. And you might Get your heart broken. See, remember this story ends in a unique way that Mary, who's told about this son that she's going to have, will also see her child at the end of all of this executed as an enemy of the state. And when everybody else leaves, who stays? His mother. 
Because sometimes when you love something, it might cost you. And there might be a sea of sorrow. And so this story, it's got some weight behind it. It's got some history behind it. It's got some details behind it. There's a reason this story has endured, and it has nothing to do with some wise men or a star or some donkeys. It has to do with the message that comes with it. A new David is coming. A David that will liberate and bring freedom, and there's no kingdom, and there's no oppressor that's going to be able to overthrow it. But there just might be some sorrow mixed in there as well. And he's coming to liberate his people just like when Moses and Miriam liberated the people. And there's going to be a messenger and there's going to be a Mary that's going to walk with him. So there's David. David was a shepherd before he became a king. And then there are these shepherds in the field by night. And the first thing that they're told is fear not. And why are they told that? Because there's a lot to fear. See, we often think that the world is way worse now than it's ever been. Did you know that every generation thinks that? Study it. Everybody always believes it's the worst that it's ever been. And so there's these shepherds out in the field by night, just like David once was out in the field by night. And the angels tell them to fear not. Well, why should they not fear? What's the story behind these shepherds? And how does it impact us? Well, we'll just have to talk about it next week. Let's pray.